0: Turn over to uh, Romans the 12th chapter. We've been going through Romans and should finish it up probably, well, probably the week after next. We'll be on it two more weeks. And on the one hand, we want to look individually at the various parts that we've looked at. We started off by looking at the entire book in a synopsis type way. And then we've looked at individual chapters and we'll go back and sum the entire thing up together. In fact, as we see getting into the 12th chapter, that Paul writes in such a way that he keeps building on the points that he made before. In fact, of all the writers in the Bible, there's probably none that wrote with more logic, or as much logic in in his anticipation of the thinking of of his readers as the Apostle Paul did. Uh, He writes, he builds up to a particular point. Uh, While he's writing, he anticipates... Objections that people might have to the things that he's going to say and so therefore he answers those objections. And we start in the 12th chapter with a statement that Paul is going to make that's based on what has been said earlier. So let's go back and just briefly review our minds. Remember that uh, Paul in the first chapter starts off by, first couple of chapters, summing all mankind up in sin. He makes it clear that the Gentile even though he did not have the law of Moses, had absolutely no excuse in unbelief in God. Uh, the invisible God, he said, is declared by the things that are. Man has a God-given intellectual ability to recognize that something doesn't come from nothing. For every effect there's a cause, uh, that, that the cause or the effect has to be equal to or greater than the cause. I should say the cause has to be equal to or greater than the effect. That like begets like. And so using all of this, Paul says in Romans 1.20 that man just simply is without excuse. Uh, I don't need to prove to you that this watch has a mecker. I don't need to prove to you that uh, somebody put this suit together. There's no way you're going to buy that it just fell into place. In the same way, Paul said that man is without excuse. He didn't care about his arguments, his reasons. He's without excuse in not believing in God. The invisible God is declared with the things that are. He got into the law. And we, on the first hand, we might think, well, the the Jew has a big advantage. He did have some advantages. But Paul looked at the morality of the Gentile, and he says, you have no excuse. Uh, You're made in the image of God. You've got a conscience. There were Gentiles that in and of their own nature determined the things of the law in such a way that their own conscience would either condemn them or excuse them. Keep in mind, we are made in God's image, Anytime you figure something out as being right, your own conscience gets all over you if you don't live up to it. And so he said the Gentile figured out the moral principles of the law. That he recognized that a society could not exist without following those principles. That that was success in life. And so the Gentile could figure out a creator. He could figure out moral principles. And so he was without excuse. He stood condemned because he deserved to be condemned. There was no excuse. And then he looks at the Jew, and he doesn't want this Jew, as was the case with the Jew, patting himself on the back and thinking of how great he was and and how knowledgeable he was and how superior to the Gentile, because he says, you've got all this information, but you've sinned too. You're preaching, don't do this and don't do this and don't do that, but you do it. And so he sums up in Romans 3, verse 23, everybody, Jew and Gentile, under sin. Everybody's lost and everybody deserves to be lost. God is just and God's the only just being in the universe. Then he proceeds to show the salvation that is offered in Christ Jesus. He makes it clear that there is no way possible that a person can be saved out of Christ. There is no way that any individual will, in the final analysis, get to heaven and say, I'm there because I did such and such and such and such. Because you just fall short, and I fall short. If you get to heaven, it's going to be because of Jesus. By grace we're saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast before God. None of us are going to brag when we get to heaven. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. And so Paul says there's no condemnation then to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, then Paul's mind right away, he anticipates the thinking of everybody. Well, then, if you're saved by grace and not by works, then let's just go out and sin that grace may abound. Paul's answer is, God forbid. May it never be more accurately translated. Romans 6 and verse 1. In order to enter Christ, we had to come to believe that we were sinners and that we wanted to die to sin. So how can we who have died to sin live any longer therein? He's not teaching that when you die to sin that you're, that you're perfect. But you have died to the love and the practice of sin. You've wanted to separate yourself from that way of life. You've changed your mind. You're now pursuing Christ's likeness. And so why are you asking a ridiculous question? That Can we go ahead and sin? Why do you want to sin? If you've died to sin, you don't want to sin. And so Paul's saved individual is a sinner who doesn't want to sin. Now there's a difference. There's a difference between a sinner who wants to sin and could care less about God's law and a sinner who doesn't want to sin inwardly loves God's law but finds himself in a situation like Jesus expressed, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And so Paul deals with that man in Romans 7. God's law is perfect, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. God forbid that anybody would be so insane that they would want to deviate from something that is perfect, right, and good. But wretched man that I am, when I look at his perfect, right, and good law and take a good look at myself, I see that I fall short. I just simply don't live up to it. And so the only way I can be saved, the only way I can be righteous, is by his righteousness that's imparted to me. And Paul was thankful to God that he had a righteousness based on his trust in Jesus that was imparted to God and not dependent on his own merits. Philippians 3 and verse 9. Then in 9, 10 and 11, that we looked at last week, the 11th chapter, Paul deals with the providence of God and all the planning that went into this plan of salvation, and as we've seen through here, Paul's plan of salvation was not here, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. His plan began at the beginning with the sin of man, and how a just God could justify an unjust people. And so he ends by marveling at the wisdom of God, that God in his wisdom found a way that a just and holy God could justify an unjust people. Now that, if you think about it, that seems like an impossibility. How does an unjust people stand before a just and holy God? Well, God figured it out. And that was the mystery of God. That was the wisdom of God to the Apostle Paul. And he stood back in all God's wisdom that he found a way to justify an unjust people. Then he goes back and looks at the plan all the way through, and he makes it clear that God's plan always stood according to promise and not, to, not according to legal requirements. That legal requirements don't always fit, fit the bill. And so he goes back and looks at some individual, and there was Abraham, and his first son was Ishmael. And legally, the seed should come to Ishmael, firstborn. But it wasn't. It came according to promise. Isaac was the more spiritual. God knew this. And God has chosen Isaac then that the Messiah would come from, even though he's the second one. But then he comes on down. It's not just Isaac and Ishmael we're dealing with. And by the way, the Arabs and the Jews are still fighting over that. And the Arabs have got a good case with Ishmael. Now, I don't know if any of you seen the debate on Nightline the other night between the Arabs and the Jews. They both recognize themselves as Semites, the descendants of Abraham. One by Ishmael, the other by Isaac. And the Abra- the the Arabs, by way of Ishmael, are claiming legal rights to this day. So then we come down. We got Jacob and Esau. Legally, the lineage should come through Esau. He's the firstborn of the two, but he's not the most spiritual. And and Paul is establishing the point throughout Romans that the true the true saved individual has always been the spiritual person, the spiritual Jew, the circumcised in heart, Romans 2, verse 28. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, not outwardly. Circumcision is of the heart and not of the flesh. Anybody can be circumcised in the flesh, but not everybody is circumcised in heart. And so the seed now is to come by way of Jacob, even though legally it should be by way of Esau, but Jacob is the most spiritual and so God has chosen Jacob and he comes and works through him and then he makes the statement I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy who are you to question God God knows everybody's heart God has used vessels of wrath through the centuries whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, whether it's Pharaoh whoever it may be but God knows our heart and those people whom God knows will submit to him God will use them, and he will develop them. In fact, Paul said, God will cause all things to work together for good for those that love God, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become heirs of eternal life. Whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified. If God be with us, who can be against us? And now we come down to the 12th chapter. He's told us all about, number one, our need. Number two, our mercy that's displayed in Christ. And so, Paul, now as we hit the 12th chapter, has us in the position of beggars that are looking for a handout, and we've got that handout. And so we have a lease on life because of God's mercy, because of of Christ Jesus, we can have eternal life, we have the remission of our sins, and so we begin chapter 1. Therefore, in light of everything I just said, okay, that's what it means, in light of everything I've just said, in light of the first 11 chapters of Romans, mind you, In light of everything that I've just explained to you, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For the, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many Form one body and each member belongs to all the others we have different gifts according to the grace given to us if a man's gift is prophesying let him use it in proportion to his faith if it is serving let him serve if it is teaching let him teach if it is encouraging let him encourage if it is contributing to the needs of others let him give generously if it is leadership let him govern diligently If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patience in affliction, faithful in prayer. (coughs) Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It's written in his mind to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, now, back up here to the first part of this. (coughs) So far to this point, maybe because of the audiences that I've talked to in their background, I've never had it fail, but that when you present salvation in the grace of God, Salvation that involves a righteousness that is a gift from God and not something that you earn in any sense, not something that you merit, but the free gift of God. A salvation that does not depend on your being legally right on every jot and tittle. A salvation that does not depend on your being perfect in fulfillment of even the laws that you understand. There are ways that Those that sit back who come from the same background that I come from and have the same attitude that I used to have and think, well, wait a minute. Are we opening up a Pandora's box? If you don't tell the brethren that they've got to be there on Wednesday night and and Sunday night, are they going to go to hell and who's going to be there? If you don't tell the brethren that they got to do the Lord's Supper every first day of the week or they lose their soul, Song, who's going to do it? If you don't tell them they got to give, who's going to do it? If you don't tell them that you've got to be meticulously organized and etc. and etc. or you lose yourself, then who's going to study that diligently? If you don't tell them they have got to keep the piano out or be lost, then who's going to keep somebody from dragging that thing in? Every human creed that was written all through the centuries was written by good it with good intentions. You know, we talk about creeds, there wasn't one of them that was written in bad with bad intentions. I don't care if you're talking about the Articles of Faith, the Baptist Manual, the Methodist Discipline, the Catholic Catechism, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. Go back and study the background to every one of them. They all were written with good intention because people who loved God and loved his word were scared that somebody was going to lead God's dumb people astray and they'd deviate from the right way. Paul answers this. Uh, in, in a perfect way. He's talked about salvation in Jesus. Can we present salvation in Jesus as it is, a free gift based not on your merits but on your trust in the atonement of Jesus at an attitude of heart that's willing to repent and put that trust in him? Can we offer it there? and not open up a Pandora's box for all kinds of lasciviousness and different types of sin, and a congregation where people don't respect the will of God, where they don't assemble as they should, and things of that nature. Paul answered that partly in the 6th chapter, didn't he? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! We've died to it. But notice now, here's the difference. Can you name off any more good things to do than what Paul, you just look at what Paul just named off that he wants us to do in the 12th chapter. Look at that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take a good look at yourself. If you've got the ability to teach, be a teacher. If you've got the ability to preach, be a preacher. If you've got the ability to be a great servant in the church, be a servant. If you've got the ability to lead, be a great leader. If you're a compassionate person that comes easy with you, that's your strong point, use it. If you're good at encouraging others, use it. Then he he comes on down, and and after talking about all these things he wants us to do, he says, man, be zealous. Don't like in zeal, but be fervent in zeal. Then he asks us to do something even. It's a lot harder than breaking a little cracker and drinking grape juice. Bless those who persecute you. Man, I don't know about you that now you're stepping on my toes. That's hard to do. I don't have any problem breaking that cracker off and drinking grape juice. I've been doing that perfectly for 25 years. Haven't missed it yet. I've never had any problem in perfectly immersing anybody. If somebody says they, their elbow's still out, fine, I'll do it again. Get all over there. That happened, by the way, to me once. I've never had any problem perfectly fulfilling that. And when I was immersed, I know he got me all the way under. I've never had any problem with that. I've never had any problem in singing without a piano. But man, this right here, bless those who persecute you. I have problems with that. My natural, freshly personality is a tip for a tap. You smack me and I'll smack you right back. You step on my toes, and I'll step on yours. That is my fleshly personality. You treat me good, I'll treat you good. You treat me bad, I'll treat you bad. But he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And so he demands something that is contrary to my fleshly nature, something that's godlike something that is Christ-like. It's God-like, Paul said in Romans 5, somebody might die for a good man, for a righteous man, but while we were enemies of God, he died for us. Now that's God-like, is when people don't like you, and they do things contrary to you, and you go ahead and treat them nice, and you bless them and you're civil and you're courteous and you don't stick up your nose and you don't slight them and you treat them kindly even though they're treating you another way man, that is hard to do. Verse 17 Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Man, I've got the answer to the problem between the Jews and Arabs convert them to Christ not to any denomination where they can just keep a a few legal requirements and think they're saved, but convert them to the Jesus of the New Testament where he says don't repay anyone evil for evil. They can't stop fighting over there because every time one does something to the other, the other one has to respond. Well, the other one's got to respond. And so they're like the McCoy's in the Hatfields where 250 people died over a stolen pig because everybody just kept responding. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Man, that's hard to do. Do not take vengeance. Leave it for God's wrath. Man, that's hard. Let's go back here and look at this again, first part of the chapter. He's talked about salvation in Christ by grace through faith, not of works. But what is the end result of that opening of Pandora's box for sin? It's the opposite. Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy, in other words, now as a Christian, Our motivating force for for righteousness is not fear. Our motivating force for righteousness is not keep a few legal things so I can pat myself on the chest. Our motivating force is God's love for us. And so when I think about all these things that God wants done, I need to first, Paul says, think about what God has done for me. Count your blessings. Without Jesus, it would be better that I wasn't born. Because without Jesus, all I'm going to do is get a taste of life, enough to know that I like it. You know, you know the old statement, try it, you like it? Well, I've tried life, and I like it. Uh, the, the idea of death is nauseous to me. It's just nauseous. I want to live forever. don't want to turn loose of life at all. I'll give up anything in preference to life. But without Jesus, I'm going to be snuffed out like a candle. I have nothing. And I've got nobody to blame. Because I'm the one that sinned. I'm the one that has fallen short. God didn't require the impossible of me when he asked me to keep his law. Jesus kept it. He emptied himself, came to this earth, was flesh and blood, was tempted in every way that I've been tempted, and and he kept it. Sometimes we act like that God has given us an impossible test. Tell that to Jesus. He emptied himself. Although he existed in the form of God, he counted not that equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and came to this earth and took upon himself the form of flesh. Philippians 2, 5-8. And the Hebrew writer says he was tempted in all ways, like we are tempted, and yet did not sin. And so God didn't require the impossible of me. Jesus came on the scene a blank sheet, in a human, fleshly frame, and he was a perfect person who never sinned. And so, without Christ, I'm going to die with no hope, and I deserve it. With Christ, I have eternal life peace of mind, tranquility of spirit, confidence of God's providential care, and I'm going to react to that kind of information by going out here and willfully sinning? Or saying, Lord, I don't want to take the Lord's Supper? Or, Lord, I'd rather sit home tonight and watch TV rather than to meet with the brethren and study your word? Or, Lord, on Wednesday night that I'd rather sit home and watch Gunsmoke or whatever's on Miami Mice, vice or whatever, than to come here and, and, and study with your people? I like Kentucky basketball. But I've never missed a service of the Lord to watch Kentucky play basketball. There is no way, Paul assumes this, there is no way that anyone alive who is a Christian who fully understands the grace of God and God's love for us and his mercy for us and what he's given for us, is going to willfully sin. Therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, think about God's mercy. Think about all he's done for you. You know, we recognize this in other parts of life. My mother is 75 now. She has Parkinson's disease. She can't physically do anything for anybody. (coughs) She can't cook any fantastic meals when we go home or anything like that. You know, her, her hands are like that. Every single solitary holiday and in between holidays and on the phone and in letter, we're in contact with her. And as soon as school's out, one of the first things I'll do will be going home to see my mother. Nobody has to make me do that. I'm not going to go to hell or worry about going to hell if I don't do that. And when I'm there, I want to spend time with her. Why? No legal requirements to fulfill. I think of what a fantastic mother she was to me from my youth. Up. that's all I need that's my motivating force now if she had not been a good mother I don't think I'd feel that but as a sense of duty then I'd have to take over and maybe force myself to do some things contrary to my feelings but I don't have to force myself to do anything there I don't even think about it from the standpoint of I'm going to go to hell if I don't do that or I have to do that that's crazy No child who has had good parents feels that way. The motivation comes from the type of parent that she was. The same feeling towards my children. I don't need the law of the land to say you have to do this or we're going to throw you in jail. Let them reserve that for the people who don't care. You don't need that either. Well, if I can do for my children out of love without the legality of the law and for my mother why can't I serve God in the same Well, I can and the only people that cannot are those that don't love God the person who is only going to be at service because he's got a hell and brimstone preacher standing up there saying you're going to hell if you're not here that night he doesn't love God he's better off at home anyway staring the fire out of him he's not going to do anything the person who's only going to give, the person who's only going to do what's right because of that, is doing it for the wrong motive, the wrong purpose. It means nothing anyway. would be better off at home. And so, no, when you talk about the love of God as expressed in Christ Jesus and salvation by grace through faith, by a God that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And John says we love him because he first loved us, you don't have to worry about opening up a Pandora's box for sin. You don't have to worry about somebody wanting to change the worship from the way that God wants it. Or come up with some weird organization that's different from the way God would want it to be. You don't have to worry about me going out there and calling myself a Hindu or anything of that nature. I don't want to call myself anything but a Christian. So the motivating force to do what's right in true Christianity is God's mercy, God's love, God's kindness. Romans 2, verse 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. So Paul says, in view of this, think about what I've just said, first 11 chapters, think about it. And in view of all of that, offer to God, notice now, Not five items of worship. How many times have you heard that? There's five acts of worship? Somebody find scripture and verse for that. I can't find it. It says, offer to God your bodies as living sacrifices. It'll take in those five acts and 50 more acts plus. So offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What is my worship? This is part of my worship. When a man is conducting himself in the way he should towards his wife, that's part of his service to God. Read 1 Peter 3. God wouldn't even listen to his prayers if he doesn't. When she conducts herself the way she should towards him, that's part of her service to God. When they bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, part of their service to God. When they you love your neighbor even when he's unlovable, part of your service to God and so now Paul says to offer yourselves a living sacrifice but what's involved in it well he tells us doesn't he we just keep reading you don't need my commentary just keep reading what's involved in offering yourself a living sacrifice to God look at your talents look at your God given abilities whatever they are use it to the fullness look for the talents that God has given you the more talent the more responsibility remember the parable of talents and then use it that's item number one in presenting yourself a living sacrifice. Item number two, love in a sincere way. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. That word cling, literally, remember when Jesus, before he uh, ascended into heaven, uh, said to the lady, stop clinging to me. I have not ascended to the Father. She was holding on to him. We let him go. You see, they done killed him once. And she had found him, and she was clinging on. Our translation doesn't do justice to that sometimes. She was holding on to him. Wasn't let him out of her sight again? Stop clinging to him. Well, here, this is when he says to cling to what is good. When you find what is right, hold on to it. Get a grip on it. And hold on to it with all your being. At the same time, you're holding on to what is good. Hate what is evil. Hate the evil, and cling, and hold on to what is good. Be devoted to one another. Don't lack in zeal. Bless those who persecute you, overcome evil with good. Leave vengeance to God. And by the way, next week in that 13th chapter, we'll see what's involved there. Leaving the vengeance to God doesn't mean that you just walk around and let people smack you in the face and spit on you or, or take whatever from you and you just say, hey, God will take care of that. Read the 13th chapter and Paul's going to tell you how God's going to handle his vengeance right here on this earth. But the point is God will do it his way and through his laws and not by me getting mad and taking the law into my own hands. This is presenting ourselves a living sacrifice to God. And he goes ahead and defines it there. It's not picking out two or three acts, but it's an entire life that's been dedicated to God. And my motivating force is my understanding of the love of God and the mercy that he has for me Paul said by the grace of God he was what he was and he outdid all of the other apostles. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. The next time you're listening to a legalist talk about salvation through a few points to a group that actually believes that, you compare those lives to the lives of individuals who love God and who are given everything they've got. You compare them. There is no way that one will compare with the other. Love will outdo any legal principle that anybody can dream up. And the greatest motivating factor always centers around the person of Jesus and what he gave for us. Let's conclude our study for this morning. If you're here as one that is not a Christian, God loves you so much that he gave Jesus to die for you. He wants you to live for him. That's your response. He wants to be your savior and your master. He wants to save you. And then he wants you to live for him, to present yourself a living sacrifice for the rest of your life with the knowledge all the time that you have eternal life and the remission of your sins in Christ Jesus If you're not a Christian and you know and understand the good news of salvation in him, if you've never been immersed into him and you have repented, we give you the opportunity, if you so desire, to come forth.